Hello and welcome to Alex Toth in Depth. This is Paul Fricke, cartoonist, comics professor, and Toth habitué. This is the program where we discuss Toth's work and influence on comics, character design, and visual storytelling. Subscribe on YouTube or to the podcast. Check show notes for links. For daily Toth art posts, follow at Alex Toth in Depth on Instagram. We've got almost 22,000 followers on there, and it's the best place to find news about the program um, and uh, forthcoming projects. So follow and spread the word. In discussion with us this episode is photographer and author of My Father, My Faith, Alex Toth's daughter, Dana Palmer. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dana. Thanks for joining the show. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, The main intent for this show when I started it a few years ago was to focus on your dad's work. But I can't help it when I've done certain episodes or in talking with other people that we do get into his personality. It's almost impossible to uh, avoid. And I do think that there is something to be gained from you know, going more into, uh, you know, what made him tick uh, personally and with his work. Um, And you have a unique point of view. So um, I appreciate you being willing to to, uh, speak about it um, and and, uh, about your book and the time you spent with him. How, in a broad sense, um, from your unique perspective, how do you assess his work do you accept him as a genius? And what, why is that? If, is that because you've heard other people talk about it? Or are you looking at the work and, you know, just what do you, how do you think of him in that, from that perspective? I mean, it's weird to hear someone say that, that your father's a genius. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not something... If I ever say that, I preface it by saying that's what other people say about yeah. him. Mm-hmm. And I and I have come to accept about him. But when I see his work, um, it's my own internal artistic compass that is so drawn, no pun intending, to what he does and the way and the way he always drilled it in my mind to use the least amount of lines when you create, to use the least amount of words when you speak, when you write. So Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated, especially kind of the black and white reverse part of what he does. So crisp, so clean. So I love it. I love it. And so when I read what somebody else says about it, I, how can I not agree? But my personal artistic creative compass is also drawn to it. And, and you've done creative work yourself with photography and, and uh, you worked hard to design or work with people to design your book as well. It's really well put together. That's very kind. Um, I started a graphic design biz business back in the eighties and early nineties and, and did some t-shirt design and so forth. And, um, and then yes, was a photographer. Um, then I did some sort of abstract, very loose painting, acrylic painting. I mean, no, I am not like the apple that dropped off my father's tree. I, I, whatever gifts I have, I do attribute to him. Um, absolutely. Because for me to, I could sit at a piano and I could hear something and play. I could pick up a brush 
and sell a body of work after taking one class. I could, but I do have some weird, I don't know, uh, can't see perspective, can't draw like a horse running through a field. I don't have that sort of gift. But yeah, pick up a camera that I don't even understand because of my own little weird mind stuff. I never understood an f-stop, aperture, anything like that. But I could see something and feel something and capture it. And it was such a high. It just took me 20 years. I, I was afraid, but I would just keep pushing myself out there. It was just so passionate. So that has to come from somewhere. So I believe it came from him. Yeah, I think the fact that as a kid I could sit at the piano, I could listen to a song and sit down and play, but I couldn't read the music. Um, I could pick up my camera, not understand f-stops or apertures, but see things in my mind and feel completely like secure about what I could capture in front of my, you know, I was passionate about it. I could see things and I could make it happen. Mm -hmm. Um same with painting. I could pick up a paintbrush and do a body of work and sell that work. Um, so I, I attribute that to my father's genetics, but I have always had a really difficult time um, assimilating technical information, mm. which is why I didn't understand my camera. And I would read and read and read the booklet and play with it. And it it was almost like I can do left brain, right brain, but they can't cross over. Right. So, yeah. Oh, oh, you mentioned that in the book too. Um, is that a dyslexic thing or is it a, what, what is that? And you said your, your, your dad had some of that as well, apparently. He did. He did. And it angered him and, and he tried to hide it. <laughs> but in his case, you know, he was so great at what he did creatively. It would show up in really curious places like, you know, I got you a new microwave, dad. I don't need a new microwave. And, and I wouldn't understand his anger or, or a new phone, but he couldn't, even the simplest stuff, if it was anything to do with technology, he couldn't, couldn't do it. And um, so I asked him once point blank, I said, you know, that's funny. I can't assimilate technical information. I totally have to go intuitively and creatively from the right side of my brain. And I said, do you struggle with that at all? And he admitted that he did. And he had never, ever talked about it. And, you know, in my growing up, I'm 65. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about that stuff either. It was like, okay, I have this challenge. I was yelled at by an instructor in a sketching class I tried to take because I couldn't see the perspective. He said, you know who your father is. You're a photographer. You can do this. And I was like, I don't see it. I don't see the perspective. So I can't draw it. Well, yeah. and... and do you think that he was frustrated because he knew he had the condition? Like he knew there was something wrong with the wiring or, or, or was he just frustrated because he couldn't seem yeah. to grasp it? Yeah. It would be in his nature to just blame something else like me for getting the phone or technology for being stupid right. or why can't you still use the old 1969 phone? <laughs> why can't you? <laughs> That's that how he would deal with it. Anger, anger, right. anger. Exactly. <laughs> Well, that's a whole, then it's a whole nature nurture thing. And you're saying in this case, you think it was more nature because from what you've described, um, it's not like he, like you're growing up, right? All of you and your siblings and, and he's working in the house before he left. He's there, right? 
Right. But he, you, he didn't really let you into that world. So you, you weren't, um, it's not like he held you by the hand and said, here's what I use and here are my tools and sit on my lap while I'm drawing. That didn't occur. Uh, no, that would have been amazing. <laughs> no, yeah. no, because I think, first of all, it was stressful. The house was so small and he's trying to meet a deadline and there's four kids running in and out or, you know, two or three, depending on the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like I, I think I said in the book once, I asked him a million times, throw the Frisbee or a ball. And I don't remember one time the whole time. I mean, he left when I was six, but I don't remember us ever doing that. I just remember him sitting at that table mm-hmm. needing peace and quiet and actually staying up to wee hours of the morning, morning, trying to get that while we were sleeping, which makes perfect sense. So. It does. But did you feel then, I mean, you talked about his schedule too, right? He, because he was up for wee in wee hours working, then he's sleeping uh, in and the shades are drawn. And did you feel like his working at home and his work schedule and habits kind of dictated what happened in the house? Yeah, 100%. You know, and again, um, back then, it was still middle class to live in a 1200 square foot house with four kids, (laughs) you know, um, but nowadays somebody would have a separate space for that. Or, you know, there were times where I think my mom said he got a little office or whatever to try to get out of, of that space. Mm -hmm. But I, it felt oppressive to me. Um, the darkness during the day or him being up at night or having to be quiet. I mean, you know, being a kid, a young kid at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was mystical in a way. You know, him sitting at that window Mm. with all that stuff on his desk and creating, Mm -hmm. you know, that was like, to me, that was mystical. But, um, but there's the flip side, you know, unavailable because he has to concentrate. And and now that I'm older, I understand. But when you're little, you don't. No, I bet, you know, and I'm, I I can't help but compare it to my situation. Like I just kind of knew I wanted to do art. And I also wanted a family and my wife is also an artist. So we tended to tag team on projects um, as we were doing commercial work and storyboards and all that. And we're also able to build a home and kind of have the ideal studio. So we have two daughters and they're grown now, but we feel very fortunate that all the stuff we brainstormed on our honeymoon, we actually were able to pull off. And I was able to, my, my, uh, we were able to have the kids around and while I worked, and I would bring them up on my lap and say, here, uh, dab a little color on this Best Buy storyboard <laughs> or or and, and we had a, a little section in the, Mary had a place to um, uh, paint. Um, and then the girls had a place to work in the same space in separate compartments of the studio or, you know, we did a black chalk uh, board kind of thing on the wall so they could do all that. So I feel I mean, that's what I, I think that's the kind of thing you would have liked to do with what we were able to pull off. And I feel fortunate to be able to do it, but that's not the situation you had uh, growing up. Um, no. And, and that is ideal. That's awesome to bring the kids into that environment and to have a also protected space for yourself to go if you need to, you know, and back in those days, it was just so different too. I, I forgive him in the sense that, and I can already tell you're a totally different temperament than my father. Um, you know, fathers weren't like fathers are now, you know, um, 
they weren't as involved on in certain levels. It was like my mom took care of the domestic things. Yep. Dad was earning the money. And in some ways we were, you know, to stay out of the way, <laughs> go outside and play. It was just different. Yeah, no it doubt. Was- I mean, my family, when I was growing up, was a traditional nuclear family as well. But my dad worked a lot and he was gone. I, strangely enough, I never felt like he was like missing because when he'd come home, we were, he, we had his attention. Uh, which I love was, that. So he was very nice about that, but he really did. My mom worked hard, uh, you know, with us four and, and he was gone all the time. He would work some 60 to 80 hour weeks sometimes. And I still didn't feel he was missing, but it was a completely different construct. So I knew that when we were, uh, Mary and I were trying to build our life that we were going to try to emulate the things I thought my parents did well but also that I really wanted to work at home. And that had to be a different construct, not only for me creatively and for Mary as well, but also uh, for the girls and, and, you know, either to instill creativity in them and they both can draw and are very creative, um, but also just for a, a good family life. So I'm sorry to you be, didn't have that. But. Be present. Well, you know, and, and again, looking at my father, who was an only child, no point of reference. You could have a dream about how you would want it to be, but then his work life, and he was just so serious about those deadlines. Those things were looming for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he took, he just took it very, very, very serious. So that just even to take a moment to invite me onto his lap and just be a little more playful about it. It just wasn't something he did. And when he talked about work, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and again, I forgive him for this because like he was an only child and he didn't have the easiest um, time of it. But he ta- he tried to talk to us as adults because he talked about the dynamics of the industry, not the gift, the craft, the work. Yeah. It's interesting. So what does a teenager want to hear about Hannah Barbera or whatever his latest project is. And, you know, with a cigarette telling me the story, I'm just like, and I'm listening to anything because I'm just wanting to listen to be in his life. Right. Yeah. You but I really, that, that he would have been able to like, Oh, here's how I go about this or how, here's how I think, but he, he just didn't do that. That's so interesting. No, he did that with others. He did that with others. He did that in letters. He did that with interested, you know, other people coming up into the industry that would write to him or, you know, he would share that wealth. And I, I thought in his final years, if he would have gotten himself to a state of being healthy, physically healthy, Mm -hmm. he would have made an amazing teacher. I really do. I think it would have just naturally happened that way, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't a teacher. I don't remember him that way. My siblings might have a different recollection, but for me, mm-hmm. he wasn't a teacher in that way. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, in his notes and writings with other people and other things, you can see that he could instruct. He had ideas and he knew how to get them across. The temperament issue, like I'm trying to imagine uh, Alex in a classroom. <laughs> and I don't know well, if it's. When it came to critiquing, you know, he could be brutal to people. Then there were certain people that he was hands off about, and I don't have any idea why. Um, He had a friend like that, and even I could see that the work, okay, but he never, ever creamed him. (laughs) 
I don't know why he was very delicate with him, but with a lot of other people, he could be brutally honest. Yeah. And and maybe in an effort to help them, but yeah. That's the, that's the story we hear and all the anecdotes and, and he was hard on himself too. So, I mean, he certainly turned the, the guns on himself. Um, I mean, that's where it stems from, right? You're hard on yourself. Therefore, how could you be not on others? Yeah, exactly. And now, so, and so just to get a picture here, the, um, he did have like, and, and there's a picture in your book, I think of a setup. It's like a traditional studio setup, right? Um, that's where you, you would mainly see him working. Yes. And, it was, and, um, and, that sorry, little house had a, had kind of a enclosed somebody before they bought it or whatever. It looks like they enclosed a patio. So it was all glass. It was really cool looking out to the backyard. Hmm. Um, and, um, and that's where he always had his drawing board when he was living, you know, at the Coolidge house there. Got it. And then you mentioned too, that he would, you remember him sitting on the couch with a, a board on his lap and drawing there as well. What yeah. kind of board was that again? Oh yeah. The cut, the old cutting boards that used to be built right in under the kitchen sink. Yeah. He is such a minimalist. <laughs> He would never like go on Amazon and buy something if that were able to happen left back then. No, no, he would. It's like his back scratcher was like the pasta thing, the pasta wooden thing. It's like hilarious to me. It's hilarious. (laughs) When he's drawing on the couch, does he, is he comfortable there? Is, is he working on work or is he just sketching? What's he doing there usually at the couch? It didn't ever look. Yeah, it didn't ever look comfortable to me. And and then he did that when he was living with Gaila. He did that all the time, like at the mm-hmm. coffee table and the couch, which has zero support for your back. I mean, any of us that have worked at a drawing table yeah. or a drawing board know that's the worst possible. But he did it with the cigarette and the coffee or the iced tea or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, always, always. I just think he liked, you know, the atmosphere of being amongst the house, like sitting in the living room or, you know, especially at Gila's, him and Gila's house. To be in the thick of it. Kind of. Yeah. that You you would think, especially, I would guess, because he was isolated for so long later in his life, that that would be his bent in the house as well. But it wasn't in this case, sometimes. Yeah, it's so funny. I I saw a movie. I wish I could remember what it was, but it was about this horrible, well, he was probably a talented writer, but he was horrible to his wife and his family. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually they were going to leave and his best friends had said something about, well, geez, you must love the peace and quiet in the house now. And he said, I only like it when I know somebody's in the next room. So once there's nobody there, and you're really all alone. It's a completely different animal. But if you're alone or in a room or isolated and, you know, someone's making spaghetti on, you know, the stove and the kids are running around, that's very different. Yeah, it's funny, too. You never know how that shakes out. When when my girls were in their teens, I really thought, like a lot of teens do, that they would go to their rooms and we wouldn't see them that much. And then we, you know, I'd miss them and I'd have to get them out every once in a while, but I would enjoy the time in the living room. They never left. They were always in the living room. Sometimes they would be on their iPad with like a blanket over them, but they were like, they wanted to be with us. I love that. 
we were all together and they wanted to be so that it surprised me you never know what people are going to do in that regard yeah uh, how it's going to go you mentioned I, I there was one little thought here um about how his brain worked and so on uh and, and issue you had too and it just reminds me of the line that, that your mom said that he he could understand he had all these books about cars and then couldn't change the oil. how did that go down exactly he read all those books about cars and he could tell you this car and this year and he loved vintage cars and everything but my mom said that she goes honey he has read so many books but he, that man could not change the he could probably tell you how to do it mm-hmm. but he couldn't go do it or he wouldn't go do it or he couldn't work the lawnmower my mom would mow the backyard i mean it was a push mower kind of thing but everything like that was just he was just super quirky you know like like we got aphids in the back um tree and he sprayed it with apple cider vinegar well you know that was in the 60s now we know apple cider vinegar has all these great you know and it's healthy and he didn't want to use chemicals he had this side to him that was super natural organic you know he mm-hmm. loved to make barley soup and and you know go to trader joe's <laughs> you know it, it it just doesn't match up with the guy that's chain smoking four packs of cigarettes a day <laughs> that's true i love that part of him he's just so he's so intelligent he he's his own person that way mm-hmm. and his thoughts and his feelings and his convictions you know, I just love that myself personally. That was a very positive part of him. Yeah. Well, I think in the, um, for people who follow his work and like him a lot, they'll compartmentalize that stuff or they will, um, focus, uh, so much on the temperament that they'll just say, well, he was like that and he was difficult. So I don't even want to deal with that. Or if he was brutal to people or honest or uh, harsh and crit- critique, then that's just the way he was. And, and boy, what a, what a grouch, <laughs> what a difficult guy. But from what I've, I've read, uh, what's discussed in the, in the larger books, what you cover in the book, it sounds like he had a whole bunch of different conditions. Um, so I, I have a saying that all things are true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can dissect and put things in boxes and define somebody or something. Some, um, I think the unfortunate part, and, and I, I kind of understand why now, mm-hmm. um, but the part of him that got the better side of him in relationships um, and gave him, you know, I mean, that's what people kind of came to know is that grouchy side mm-hmm. is real. And nobody deserves to be talked to a certain way. I don't care how talented you are. Mm-hmm. And it, it can't just come under the premise of honesty because you can be honest without being cruel. And he had, in my observation as his daughter, he just had a huge amount of unresolved anger that would just get triggered or he would just feel like he's entitled to address something that way. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> it doesn't work very good. I think he got a pass with people that knew the other side. And I think he got a pass because of his genius. Um, mm-hmm. It became part of a character. 
and you accept it along with the rest. But some people decided that they couldn't. Some people close to him, including me, decided you just can't put yourself in the line of that fire. It's not fair. And so I completely understand. Well, yeah. And I didn't, uh, because of that reputation and I'm could be sensitive about my own work in general. I didn't write him in that regard. I don't know why I couldn't have just wrote him and said, Hey, I like your work. And that would have been that for some reason, I thought I had to show him my stuff too. And, uh, I never could, I couldn't take it if it went bad from him, especially it would have demolished me. So I just didn't. Um, and that said, I didn't have that direct contact. I did not feel that directly. And so I can't really judge people who've made that uh, decision at all. How did that happen for you? You didn't talk to him for how, how long? 10 years or something? Yeah, it was about a decade. And, and it killed me. It, it just, I mean, that killed me. But um, apologies don't come from his side <laughs> very mm-hmm. often at, at all. And um, he had just, he would just write me these postcards that were angry in some way I failed him. And look, he had, he had the right to take issue with certain things. I wouldn't respond and thank him properly for something he sent me. Um, he would get mad at me because I said, I'm taking a trip to Mexico and, and I would get this barrage of anger and I'd say, why are you so angry? Well, damn it. I don't know. (laughs) But you know, later when I connected the dots, because I was too much right there face to face, it's like, how do you separate yourself? You're the daughter and somebody's coming at you with that anger. My mom was amazing because she, she was amazing in this regard. I would read her the postcard and she'd just say, honey, that's your father. He loves you, but that's who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I connected those dots in those situations as a father daughter, that a lot of it would be fear. Afraid I'm taking a trip by myself, afraid I'm going to a place he doesn't understand or that he considers a threat to me. So But I think, you know, maybe anger is our third or fourth emotion for most of us. Anger was like my father's first or second emotion, you know, and um, you had to break through it to get to the good stuff sometimes. You know, it's like, yeah. That was his default setting. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a safe place. And so um, I just, uh, it hurt me, but I, I, in my own little life, I had to say, you know, I don't allow others to talk to me this way. And he's like a main character in my life. Like, why would I allow him to just, you know, those postcards could set me back for like three or four days because I'd be questioning myself. I guess I am a really bad daughter. And I guess I, you know, the tables were switched. In other words, you know, I'm the kid. He's the adult. Mm -hmm. I haven't stolen from him. I haven't murdered anybody. What did I do to deserve that? It's, it's out of whack out of whack. Well, his assessment of those things was out of whack, right? These were fairly minor things and then he would blow them up. Right. Um, and so, but when he's yelling at you about Mexico, that's, he actually is, has his own fears about you, but then there's a protective thing there about his daughter as well. Right. But then when you're you're dealing with that, a series of things over time, you did a self-protective thing and said, I, I can't, do this anymore or I don't want to fight. Did you know it was going to be that long a period of time? No, and I don't even remember like 
anything unfolding in between, it just, it's like in a box somewhere in my mind, those mm-hmm. 10 years. I don't know if, I know I made maybe a couple gestures and efforts mm-hmm. and I'm not remembering if he did or didn't, he might have. Um, I just felt afraid to like risk. And, you know, it's kind of like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to take the risk knowing what you know about someone who operates like that, even if you're, or especially if you're related to them, it just didn't feel right. And, you know, my sister had stepped up and stayed in his life, you know, because of her son and wanting um, him to know his grandfather. And, you know, Eric would see him when he went out for business to California. And um, so, you know, we all ebbed and flowed with, what we could handle and how dad would be with us. Right. And everybody would make their own decisions at different times in their life and, and, exactly. and, and so forth. Um, that is, that's an interesting thing, right? Cause I don't, re- I don't think I do that much in life. I'm pretty loyal and I try to stick and work things out, but occasionally there'll be an issue where I feel I have to do that a little bit. So it makes total sense uh, that you would as hard as it might be. Um, also, I'm just struck like how different it is from your perspective <laughs> as, from someone who is just admires his work so much. Um, my Sometimes when I see you or your siblings, like, oh, that's a good piece. I've never seen that before. What That's so great. I'm like, how could they've never seen it before? Like, I've already poured over it for decades and so on. So I can't always uh-huh. get that. Of course, uh, it's your dad. <laughs> it makes total sense. Uh, what, from your perspective, um, what do you think that uh, people who just admire his work and, and didn't know him might be missing or what perspective they might they not have all the time? Well, I don't know that they are. And I, and I, I just want to speak to the whole thing about seeing a piece of his work. Um, it's, it's really weird. Yeah. When it's your dad and also when he didn't live in the house with you. Mm -hmm. And then when he just talked about the politics of the business versus the actual pieces and art, very, Mm -hmm. very limited. Did he talk about that? Right. Because you almost have to go back forensically and try to learn about those things. And then you're an adult. You have a life. It's busy. It's like going to school. There's, it's such a broad base and a history. It's like I, I refer to other books about my dad to learn about my dad, to fill those holes in for me. Interesting. For me, what was missing about my father that I think other people may or may not. I'm sure they don't know, except for the people super at the core, like the people that I call my other brothers <laughs> that have been mm-hmm. in his life for a long time, mm-hmm. um, know about him. I just came to understand what was really at the core of who he was as a human being, his heart. And it was good. And it had a shield around it and a body of work around it. But for me as his daughter, those last two years changed my life because I actually got to know the man. And Mm -hmm. I think it's easy 
whether you look at his, you know, anger or the way he can sometimes be off-putting, um, that creates distance. You look at his genius and his work, that's both draws you in and creates distance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's easy not to see inside and that he's a human being and a man. And these aren't just facts about his life, but these are the things that are really important. And and I don't think he showed that to a lot of people, but um, that was a gift for me, an unexpected gift in my life that I'm grateful for. Well, let's go into that a little bit more then. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular, um, like you, you were doing a show and you did a, a drawing, right? Like a, a female figure and he... <laughs> he's commenting like you don't draw breast right or something rather than going good for you. You did the show that that's just got to be tough to deal with. Yeah. And, Talk uh, about counseling. <laughs> this is why I didn't write him, <laughs> but holy moly. <laughs> we're, we're dealing with that kind of thing. So then at a certain point, uh, this is what he's in his um, mid seventies. Right. And then he's having uh, difficulties and it becomes very clear um, that you, somebody in the family, and then you need to step in and do that. There's also a letter that you wrote or a card you wrote to him, um, that I think is on page 75 of your book. I think it, it took a lot of guts to write that note. Cause you're, you're kind of saying you're setting boundaries in that note. Uh, um, yeah. if I recall. And yeah. I just think that takes a lot of fortitude to do that. And especially with him, um, so kudos to you for doing that. I don't know the timeline of that when you wrote that note. And yeah, when I, I actually think, I actually think that was somewhere between my late teens and my mid twenties. Okay. I think it was during the time, um, actually a time when I wasn't speaking to him, um, or we weren't speaking to one another, I should say. Um, that's, that's my creative side that just, you know, love to write and stuff. And so that would be the way that I could see myself communicating with him. Um, but it didn't, I'm not sure that it landed. I don't think anything came out of it. It was just something I had to say. That's interesting. Okay. I, I, I didn't have the chronology right on that. So I think that's even more amazing that you did that when you were younger. I'm sorry. <laughs> it didn't seem to crack through because you still had to go through everything else and an estrangement. So then. He becomes uh, ill. Uh, you and the family step in. Um, how did that feel for you personally? Like after that long an estrangement, that just I think it takes a lot of courage and 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 energy to to do something like that. It had to be kind of like an unknown thing or a fraught thing. Um, did you feel you had no choice, or or, or how did you rally? So it. You know, my sister had stepped in, um, and bless her heart, you know, she lived in what she lives in Wyoming still mm-hmm. and, um, married and a baby. And, you know, I was really the only one of us that didn't have my own children at the time. Didn't have, I wasn't married and it just wasn't fair. I really stepped up for her and for my siblings. Um, I, that might sound bad, but that was really the stronger motivation, not dad. And I didn't give him the heads up. I was coming. And you know, anybody that knows him knows he doesn't answer the phone or the door unless he wants to. And who knows? It's so arbitrary. So 
the fact that I showed up at his doorstep and then that, I'm thinking, Lord, it may. I could get smacked and all the way down those stairs in the Hollywood Hills. And then the door opens and here's this man in a bathrobe, which pretty much I think is the same bathrobe I remember from 10 years ago. And his, you know, his belly is kind of like more jolly than it ever was. Mm -hmm. And he's got his eye cocked like he does. He still looks incredibly handsome, but just disheveled. Like he just woke up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I, and I said something to him. He's like, Dana, how long has it been? And I go, well, I think it's been about 10 years, dad. And then I peeked around him because I could just see all these boxes and books and everything. I go, but I can see you haven't thrown one thing away since then. And he just started to laugh. And, you know, he literally could have, I mean, to try like ironic humor with him was like, okay, it's either going to work or it's not. But I don't know what made me say that. That is just my spirit. Uh I did that and he started chuckling and then he opened the door to me and I thought, wow. Okay. That was a miracle. That literally was a miracle. And then that was the beginning of those two years. The, the, the first step into reconnecting and, uh, and, and trying to get him out of there and in a more healthy place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his dear friend, Ruben, um, Mm -hmm had reached out to me twice. And I know he is just not a person that puts himself, inserts himself or anything, but he had called me twice Mm -hmm. and was trying to let me know it's time, you know, and that was a huge impetus for me because, you know, he lived close to dad and they were good friends and it shouldn't have ever fallen upon him to have to pick up the slack for the fact that us four kids live you know, all across the United States. Well, it's all about there. proximity in that case. But he also knew when it was time to uh, uh, to give you the signal, right? Yes. I'm eternally grateful for his honesty. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and there's so many stories from your book about how you guys interacted. Anything in particular that stands out like when you say that, that, that it's a gift to, uh, to reconnect with him and, and the changes that occurred, uh, within him, he changed things that probably at that point you never thought he would change. Right. Like leaving the house, et cetera. Yeah. I had zero expectation, but you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is his favorite song. And, um, and the, the fact that the words are, you know, about loving and being loved, the greatest thing you can ever learn is to, you know, love and be loved in return. And he's saying it all the time. He had a really beautiful voice and he would just hum and sing that. Um, and that's what I really grew to understand about him, that this soft spot inside of him and in some weird way as his oldest I don't know why, but I always knew how much he loved me and that he had a soft spot for me. I always knew it, even through all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you're in a situation like that with a parent, you're just doing what you would want someone to do for you. You know, he's still so intelligent, so with it. There's nothing about him that's forgetful or, you know, loses his talent. I mean, he would yell at me and go, can you go, you know, his pitch black living room with stacks of books everywhere. 
go get me that book third from the top over there on the third. And I'd go over there, like I couldn't even see, you know, and he's like, no, damn it, not there over there. And I turn around and go, dad, like his vision was perfect. He didn't have any glasses, but he was very intolerant that way because he just assumed everybody thought, felt, <laughs> you know, dealt the way he did. Right. Um, so we, you know, we had those kinds of moments, but it's, but yeah, he didn't want to go to a doctor. He never had since like the army. It's just not who he was, but you know, he needed to, he needed to leave. And, um, it took a lot of conversation and then an intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was a loving intervention. It wasn't a threat and he just leaned right into it. A miracle. It was just a miracle. Very surprising. You wouldn't have expected given his rep and, and, and everything that had gone before. I thought you guys did it very well with everybody being there. He had to have felt that, that it was concerned for him. Right. Yeah, I think, and that's what, that's what made me understand him more because it's so easy to say as a child, well, you know, he didn't do this and he was angry and he left the house and he did, but underneath it all, I think was the fear that he didn't do any of it right. He knew. And so he had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of brokenness on our relationships with all of us kids at different times and just feeling like he failed. And I remember saying, well, dad, will you ever fall in love again? Oh no, I don't want to do that to anybody. Like, you know, it's this death sentence to, mm-hmm. to try to have a relationship with him. Well, it kind of is, it's kind of, it kind of is hard, but, um, but I think that day with all of us standing around him encircling him, mm-hmm. he looked up and saw that, you know, we really are coming together as a family and we really do love and care about him. Yeah. Uh, uh, remarkable. The, um, I'm, I'm really struck by this, what you just said. So, you know, he, you've had all this history with him and he has p- probable conditions, uh, manic depressive or bipolar or OCD or dyslexia or whatever these things are, no matter what that is, he's still your dad. And no matter how he's treated you guys or or people, you're still going to make that embrace uh, and, and, and make those moves. And I, I just, you just mentioned like whether he, he thought he was a failure to you guys. I'm struck because at the, when my dad was failing several years ago now, yes, there were times that my folks, um, when things didn't go as well for the family and things were difficult. And, and you mentioned that your father-in-law, uh, was an alcoholic and my dad was right. Not when I was growing up, but then when I hit certain years. So when he was failing, I think he thought because things didn't go well when he was drinking at that time, I was 15 or so, um, that he had failed and that he was a bad dad. And he relayed, relayed this to, to my brother. Like, you know, I think my brother was saying something like, Oh, you're such a, you know, you're a great dad and this and that. And he thought he had failed or my mom thought that when, she was failing and my dad had passed a few years before she was surprised that everybody came from out of town to visit her because she thought everybody loved him. So it's like this whole life and history. You think everyone thinks that everybody is 
simpatico or on the same page or that there's this feeling and everything. And then everybody needs those reminders of what's in his favorite song <laughs> to love and be loved. That, and still it's not clear to everybody, even after a whole life that it's remarkable to me how people and think. You, when people are ill, you know, you set aside all that crap because it doesn't matter. What matters is whatever the issue at hand is. And you realize, yeah, like, you know, at one point, and this was, you know, after I had been back in his life for some time and he was acting like a jerk, yelling at me about pot stickers. I didn't order enough pot stickers. You know, I finally just held the line with him. And and he was odd that way. If you were kind and nice sometimes, he rolled right over you. But then this one time I just stood up to him. And um, and after I, I kind of gave it to him, I went up and put my arms around him. He was in a wheelchair just because he was recovering from something. He was fine, but... And I just whispered in his ear that night, I forgive you for whatever it is you think you've done. Mm. And even though I knew what he'd done and what he could have done better and what he maybe should have done, it was mm. like he knew. But I could tell he was tortured. He was tortured by it. Yeah, like you he'd know? let him down. Like he'd let a host of people down, you know, his wives, his children, you know, um, yeah. On, on the personal side of his life, I feel like he, he never felt like he did right by anybody. So I'm glad, I hope, I pray that he left this planet feeling otherwise. But up until those two years, I think that's how he felt. Well, and, and if he did write the ship in his head on that, you and your siblings would have made a significant the uh, contribution to, to him making that switch. Um, this reminds me a little bit of what I spoke uh, with Phil Hester about um, uh, in a previous episode. He had read your book and there's this, I've heard this line a few times that he told people that he, uh, Alex, was slowing down on finished work, actual comics pages. And a lot of what you would hear from him is that he always wanted to try something different and he had to do something new and he didn't want to let people down. I've always taken that to heart to think, wow, that's a big, a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And of course he felt that, but Phil was saying to, that that might've been a construct. Like there's no way he could have let anybody down with his work by just producing more. Every little note and scribble and doodle and a la prima drawing he did is like manna for me. So, um, uh, do you think he could have let people down with the work or is that just something he put on himself or it, was it a construct? Uh, because if you say um, that he didn't miss his work and he felt like he had nothing left to say, well, that's not a, that's something that if he feels, he feels and shouldn't force and he can just kind of live with. Right. So what are your thoughts on that stuff? Yeah, I think it was a combination I think he was very self-deprecating at times and very hard on himself. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he just didn't, even though he doodled, 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 doodled all day long, mm -hmm. he, he didn't have like a passionate push towards anything. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he was willing to just do it because, you know, um, I remember when I set my camera down, I had clients that 
oh, you know, can we hire you to do this? No, I really didn't care what they thought. It didn't feel good anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I had pushed myself really hard and produced a lot of work. And at some point I wasn't seeing anything different anymore. And dad and I talked a little bit about that just in general, the way the world is. And he said, Dana, do you ever think there's just no more pictures to be taken? You know, like we've seen it all. I'm like a thousand percent. <laughs> a thousand, you know, you want that life magazine picture that you keep in your head where you're just like, oh, the timing, the emotion, everything is so, it's like, I haven't seen that before and I'll never see it again. Yeah. And it, and then when that turns off, what's the driving force? Mm -hmm. I am in awe of creative people that I know that I have in my life that, or even small business owners that are doing all kinds of different work that continue to explore and um, redefine their work and morph into something different and open their mind to something else. That is a mm -hmm. huge gift and way to go through life. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel that. I, I want to paint. No, don't want to pick up a paintbrush. I don't care if you said, I'll write you a check for 500,000. I'd say, no, I can't do it. I think that's how dad felt. Yeah. Well, well, and he worked for what, 40 years straight in that regard, I would guess. Right. That's a lot of work. And, and I don't think he let up a lot. So it makes total sense. I don't feel that way because even though I've had a long career, the, the, the body of work isn't what I want it to be yet. So I've just got 10 or 20 projects I want to get to, and then we'll see if we get to them. Um, but I don't, I think I'll just be, I hope, uh, working away like Renoir, last painting, even if it's with, with arthritic hands, just continue to go at it um, if I can muster it, you know. There are a few stray thoughts I've got. You, you've, you have uh, spoken in his voice or talked about his singing voice, having never spoken to him is there any way to even try to describe uh, the voice? His voice or his singing voice? Either or both. I think my father had a very soothing voice in my mind. Um, and his singing was soothing. His, um, his biological father was, you know, sang. And so he probably inherited some of that from him. But um, yeah, it was... Uh, it was soothing. Yeah. I love hearing that. It's not what I expected. <laughs> really? Well, no, not Alex Toth. Doesn't it? Soothing. <laughs> it doesn't fit. <laughs> it's not the first thing that came to mind. So now that soothes me. <laughs> yeah. In some, now I'm not saying a hundred percent of the time. It definitely if the switch goes off, that's not true, but, but just, just his, yeah, his words and, oh, he was, he can be so generous, sensitive, soothing. Um, I mean, I remember showing up um, to, when he was living in this. He had moved to an apartment after everything happened and he left his house. And I had driven across country and he didn't want me to drive back again. I had done it like twice, but I used to just fly back and forth because I was in Florida at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I showed up that day and he had the phone book in his lap. <laughs> and... And he's trying to call the airlines. Now, honey, I tried to call Delta. I'm going to see if there's a way to put your your car on a plane so that you can fly you and your car home. And I'm thinking, 
who does that? Like a celebrity? No, I'm not doing that. But but see, in his mind, he wouldn't care if it cost $10,000 if he had it in the bank and I didn't have to do that. He would have done that for me. And it, it's very um, opposite of what you might imagine. He was incredibly generous when he wanted to be. Yeah, and that's and we hear that too. So as gruff as he could be, or he could cut people off, or whatever else, he always he also had these generous um, impulses, where he'd Definitely. cover somebody's, uh, you know, something right, an expenditure, or send a gift, um, and then extravagant gifts. Uh, in in your case, um, yeah, the, uh, a further dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, of this man you can't put him in a box. <laughs> can't you can't put him in a box. <laughs> Um, he also, uh, I, oh, you just mentioned, um, you know, if he had the savings and so on, um, uh, financially, I, I'm just struck. I'm not sure how well off he was to do what he wanted to do. Like he could, he must've had enough savings, right. To choose to do more work if he wanted to, but also just send notes and, and, uh, and do the doodles, and, and be okay. I, when I'm teaching uh, professional practice at, at school and when I've considered my own career, it's always, the main thrust of that is always about how do you uh, achieve a, a financial or life and then work balance. And, and all creatives just answer that question yeah. in so many different ways. Um, how did that affect what he was doing? It, it seems like um, when he, when you were growing up, right? And then even after he left, he really is the breadwinner and working, right, to provide. Right. Okay. So again, it's a different day and time. Yep. Um, no, we didn't have a lot of money ever. Um, he took care of us when he left. You know, there was enough money. And that's, you know, his favorite saying, how much do you need? You only need enough. Um, so, yes, he had the capability and he saw that it, as his job to be the breadwinner. He... But money was never a motivation. He couldn't stand like anybody caught up in that trap. He was very simple, minimalistic. But he also then had this side of him that would never, ever accept work for a price he didn't think was fair. I felt I always felt that was super interesting. He had, um, in my observation, a very strong self-esteem when it came to doing business that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I also think managing money. And by that, I don't mean that he spent a lot, but I, he isn't the kind of person to read up on investments or understand here's, you know, we're going to buy this income property or we're going to, you know, I think when he and my mother were together, she probably paid the bills. He gave her the paycheck. When him and Gila were together, Gila was very astute at those things. And they moved into her home in the Hollywood Hills. Right. And then he had never collected social security all those years. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Because, and that was one of the first things he said, I don't want to get you kids in trouble, but when Clinton got voted into office, I couldn't do it anymore. I just stopped paying my federal taxes. Well, he was retired and he didn't really have any income. You know, we went back and had like a forensic accountant, you know, do that and catch up, but it was next to nothing that he owed. But um, you know, that was the stand he was going to take. But you have to understand, so he's living in a house that pa probably got passed down to him. I don't know what their arrangement was. Right. But it's, we didn't have a house payment. He had one lamp, one light on at the kitchen table. 
And um, he didn't have air conditioning in that house, is my recollection. And when the when they wanted to change the power panel over the city or something, he dragged his feet on that because he thought they'd come and reassess the house for property taxes. And so when I contacted that office, they were very, very kind and allowed my father, I don't know, another grace period where he didn't have to do that, make that improvement to the property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then his, what he ate and all that was very minimal. He didn't go out. He didn't leave the house. So yeah, his needs were next to nothing at that point. Interesting. I'm, I, I, oh, uh, a pension. Did he ever, did he get, have a pension from Hanover Barrett uh, to your knowledge? Um, when dad passed away, I don't remember seeing anything specifically like that. He mm-hmm. and Gila had things together. Um, He'd worked there, right? That again, probably passed to him. And then he probably had his own. I don't remember exactly how it worked, but it, I, I, I think that sometimes when he needed money, he'd sell a page of his work. Mm -hmm. And I just think his needs were really minimal. And he didn't, I don't think he touched some of those things that he had, you know, this kind of more like an investment or saving. They, they weren't grand, but, and then, um, and then when he got the kind of the, when my sister got him all the security he should have had for a good, he, he didn't want to take money. He said, because there's other people that needed it more <laughs> for like you earn the social security. He was so innocent that way. And so pure financially, so pure the way he thought about things. And then that gave him a nice little, you know, amount of money. So he was okay then. Yeah. That's good. And then another stray thought, um, I, I, any pictures we see, it's all, he's a, a lefty. I've tried to look at like what effect that had on his work, but then you mentioned in the book that he was ambidextrous, not just a lefty. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I always understood about him. Yeah. And I've seen that in, in students sometimes. Uh, I don't know if you know, but um, when people, I don't know if this is happening more because of screens and tablets and so on, but a lot of my students end up having, carpal tunnel or problems with the wrist or they're wearing uh, guards and braces and all kinds of stuff. It's something even at this drawing table for all these decades, I never uh, came across, but it's prevalent now. And and some students uh, have had such problems uh, drawing uh, that they couldn't draw. And then they just started drawing lefty instead and discovered, oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and so, that, so they were able to, now they draw lefty toast style. And, and I don't even, now that you're, you're bringing this up, I don't even know the story about dad or predominantly if he drew with one and, and my recollection right now is fuzzy about that. I hope that was accurate. That was, you know, you have to question your six-year-old mind when you're writing a book. <laughs> now, wait a sec. Let me go look this up. Did anybody else say this about my dad? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But I do want to mention, this is off topic, for your students, that a good chiropractor can heal that better than anyone. Just getting the right person with the the right thing 
It, mm-hmm. it can help. I've never, I, I've certainly had PT and so on, um, but never acupuncture before. And I've had so many pains in my back that last week I had a needle stuck into me for the first time with a, a dry needle thing. I didn't have pain for hours, so I can't wait yeah. for my next appointment. So um, thank well, God for holistic practitioners. And, Chiropractors and are, uh, are amazing. It's acupuncture that we have to bring up in, in class all the time that, that everybody, regardless of uh, homework or deadlines. And, and if you want to do, a, you know, creative stuff at a drawing table um, or, or a screen for, for decades, uh, either to pick up gigs or build a body of work, you, you need to take care of yourself long-term uh, yep. to be able to do that. Uh, so your dad wasn't in the greatest shape. He was largely sedentary his whole life. Is that accurate? Pretty much. And I think his back, which was kind of hunched over then later in life probably had Mm -hmm. everything to do with exactly what you're speaking about and just being on a couch too and doing it not always Mm -hmm. having the best work situation yeah he he just wasn't you know he looks so much like my brother eric who's a physical specimen at his age Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's a cyclist you know dad just no not so much. He just always wanted to sit. And of course he was a smoker. And so you add all that kind of lifestyle into it. Um, yeah. I don't and remember him being him To some extent, right? Um, how at the end then did he, uh, I mean, he gave up smoking. How do you feel like he held, uh, healed body and mind? And, and how did you guys, uh, you know, what's the general feeling of how you reconnected because of your intervention and you guys not only reco- reconnected uh, personally, but then he also uh, healed through that, I think, in body and mind because of because of that. There were certain things that you I never thought he would give up. Right. Uh, with smoking and so on, um, whether you're talking spiritually or otherwise. What in the end, what's that connection with with uh, you and him at the end um, before he passed? Yeah, I mean, you know, dad, dad can do anything he sets his mind to. And at some point, you know, I don't know, he entered into the medical system and he just stopped smoking cold turkey. And one day, oh, we're in the hospital and somebody slaps a patch on him and we both go, what the hell is that? It's a nicotine patch. We both at the same time, me and dad go, get it the hell off. (laughs) I don't need that. I said, he doesn't need that. He hasn't been smoking for like a month or whatever it was. It was just crazy. And he never went back to smoking. I have, I have no idea how that happened. I have no idea. He knew of course that it's largely, if not completely responsible for COPD. And if he wasn't having to take meds for the COPD and the edema in the lower extremities, right? I think he would have lived another 20 years because it's the, I believe he passed away from that imbalance because it creates all sort of weird things with your potassium, your heart rate, dehydration, if the meds aren't perfect. And um, it's a very hard thing to orchestrate. Um, and you know, where he was living, he was younger than anybody and, and all that. He was just there because physically, you know, he couldn't walk around like he could before. And he definitely couldn't get up the steps to his house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad that he was that you were able to get him out of there and get some kind of um, uh, get him in a better position. Um, if he really did pass at his drawing table, it's kind of a nice thought. Um, I, there's there's actually a drawing that he did later in his life that I've just decided that was the last one. I don't I don't know uh -huh. if it would, it would have been the perfect one. So that as I read your book, and 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 you recount that that's the the drawing I imagine is there. Um, uh, so I, I really applaud what you did. Um, and regardless of the difficulties you had with him and that people had with him, I think some people kind of write him off as a difficult guy. And in what you have relayed to us and, and, and conveyed to us, um, there is more to him than that. And I think, I don't know, I guess I feel like there's sometimes missing in discussions about him. And again, from fans and mostly people who are into his work, uh, because he could be harsh, not always extending to him a degree of compassion and, and, um, and your book, uh, and, and just your demeanor in this uh, chat, uh, just shows how much of, of that you had in, in, uh, in your day-to-day -day life. And then, uh, to him, I think you brought some of that out in him, uh, later too. Oh, well, thank you. I, yeah, I, I'm very grateful. I, I fault no one for having those opinions about my father because they're true. Um, there just was something else. And um, those two years, you know, when you're looking at not being on the planet and you have health issues like that and you're in ICU and you see other people around you, you know, in even worse condition or, you know, you know, the thing about him pulling his own intubation tubes out and wanting to live at the end. I mean, yeah. how many stories do you ever hear like that? Um, you know, humility is, is what comes into your heart. And, and my father, um, I don't think he was ever, I don't think he ever had any kind of a blown up perspective about who he was. He might come off pompous, but the truth is he questioned everything and was very hard on himself. And, and when he was in ICU that last time, and he um, he did end up kind of circling back around, and and see the letters that people had sent to him that all of his fans had sent. I mean, he literally started to cry, and said, "Dina, you know they they see what I've been trying to say this whole time because it'd be a writing about some of the things he said about simplicity or this or that." He was very, very, very touched. And um, just getting to see that side of him and know that it exists. Mm -hmm. um, I wish he could have lived longer to share that because I think he would have done great things in even a different way or a broader way. And I think that would have been amazing. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm swayed by uh, how you put that uh, medically. And and then I wished for I wish for you, you guys and him that he had that time. And then, you know, uh, selfishly, I think, oh, maybe that he would have <laughs> drawn another story or whatever else. But even if he had just traveled, and uh, that would have been fine too. However, he wanted been taught. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I really appreciate you taking time to share all this. Uh, anybody who hasn't read the book, um, please do seek it out. It's it's really affecting and emotional and uh, insightful in in a myriad of ways and. Uh, in show links, all that um, will be there for you guys to uh, follow. Dana's, Dana does have copies and digital version as well, correct? Correct. 
Um, and uh, thanks again for taking the time to, uh, to chat about your dad. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for continuing the conversation. Thank you. Well, it, we'll, do, we'll all do anything we can to pass on uh, and, and keep his legacy alive. That's awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. Thanks so much. That's all the time we're giving to this episode, which was edited by Rudy Brum. This again is Paul Fricke for the Alex Toth In-Depth program. Alex said, fortify your own approach to your own work from the inside out. You are your most important teacher and student for life. Until next time, go with Toth. <laughs>